Welcome to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill, and I'll be leading you on this adventure. We'll be getting into deep discussions about classic records, profiles on up-and-coming bands, and interviews with your favorite artists. You can check out new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Steve Brodsky and I had a really cool hang. It's unlikely that you don't know what bands he played in, but Steve uh, was a founding member of Cave-In and Mutoid Man, two bands that you should really be checking out these days. We talked about a bunch of stuff regarding the ups and downs of being in a full-on band, the 90s, random heavy metal bands we both dig, and a bunch of other stuff. If you're new to this, welcome. If you're a returning listener, thanks for listening. And if you want to get at me, you can drop me an email at metalmatters at gimmeradio.com and let me know what you think of all this. Uh, in the coming weeks, we got some really cool stuff. We got more interviews. We got Dwid Hellion from Integrity, an interview with Pig Destroyer, and some more classic record episodes. I mean, you have a huge catalog of material that's that you worked on, you know, Cave In, uh, your solo material, Mutoid Man. And, um, I mean, just within Cave In, uh, you draw from a, a wide spectrum of different musical expressions. So what's the kind of, what kind of stuff were you, was formative for you? I mean, did you, you know, because I, I listen to your music and there's so much stuff going on, so many different influences. So, like, you know, what was some of the early stuff that you got into that, that put you on this path? Well, for Caven, it was deliberately a band put together to immerse myself even further in the world of hardcore and punk. Um, it just was a really exciting thing, sort of blooming and blossoming in Massachusetts and in the general northeast of the United States. And so... I just felt like that was sort of a glimpse into the world, you know, through that and beyond. Um, you know, reading Heart Attack magazine, uh, Maximum Rock and Roll, and seeing all these bands sending demos in from all over the globe. I was like, man, I got to be a part of this, you know? Um, so, Caven pulled from a lot of what was happening locally, you know, uh, Converge was a major influence and, you know, they still are. Um, but that was a, a big one, you know, uh, to the point where I actually was in the band for yeah, a couple of years. Yeah, I realized that. You're, you're playing bass for them, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're on, one, you're on a record. Yeah, When Forever Comes Crashing. And we also did another recording session that kind of yielded a few other releases, like a, a five-inch. I think that's the only five-inch record that I've ever had music released on. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I don't appear on that format either. It's a. It's a definitely a marginal one for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's really difficult to actually play a five-inch record. Most record players are like, "What are you doing? I'm a record player, not a CD player. What is this thing? <laughs> Get this beer coaster off of me." Um, yeah. So, Converge, um, Threadbare. Dead Guy, Kiss It Goodbye, um, 
Dillinger Escape Plan, you know, some of the stuff that was coming out on Hydrahead in the formative years of that label, Botch. Um, yeah, the, it's a it's a pretty big list of just like cult heavy music and. Yeah, where did the melody come from, though? Because I mean, that's the thing that really sets your your work apart, I think, from a lot of the you know the bands that you just mentioned, for example, with maybe the exception of later Dillinger Escape Plan with Greg's vocals. Yeah. Um, you know, there was like a a really pronounced uh, pop sensibility, and and I mean that like you know not like I mean that in a way that's positive that there's like a melodic sense to most of the music specifically with Cavemen at this point that we're talking about, and in general, a lot of the music that you've produced since then. Um, so, yeah, I, I hear, I can hear, you know, the, the dead guy, the convergent influences, but, I, you know, what, what always gets me is when those, those styles are melded in a way that doesn't seem contrived, and that's kind of like, you know, where did that sort of thing come from with you? Well, I'm 39, so that means I was a young teenager, when grunge and alternative rock was sort of the thing and it was all over the radio and it was huge and you know i mean for someone like me at that age like i would put on mtv when i got home from school and i'd see the pearl jam video for even flow and i was like that's where i want to be <laughs> i want to be wearing a flannel and you know crowd surfing it you know at that that particular show you know <laughs> um so that's where a lot of the melodic sensibility, I think, comes from, um, at least in early cave and stuff where I felt like I wasn't really hearing a lot of alternative rock being fused with um, this new sort of cult heavy punk music, hardcore, uh, that was sort of spinning in my world. And I just thought, well, that could be something cool to try. And so, you know, the early cave and stuff has like little flickers of grunge and alternative rock and you know it lends itself really well to jr's drumming style you know he even looks a little like john bonham <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, totally. <laughs> and so led zeppelin that's a, another huge influence on all of us yeah that's a that's a timeless band i think to this day bands are still influenced by zeppelin you mentioned hydrahead and you mentioned hardcore and punk and uh like the sort of era of Hydrahead in the late 90s um, definitely was a, um, like there was definitely like a vibe that I think helped progress hardcore punk or metal punk or hardcore metal or whatever the hell you want to call it into um, a more, uh, let's, uh, for lack of a better term, like it, it put more of a, uh, a thinking man spin on stuff. I mean, prior to that, you know, punk and hardcore was like way more from the gut, way more from you know, just like a visceral sort of, um, you know, statement as opposed to having more of a cerebral uh, component to it. And I think what Hydra had brought to the table was the combination of of uh, aggregating like this really heavy, intense physical thing with art, you know, layout and and also uh, a little bit of a different, more cerebral message. And I feel like Caven kind of played like a big a big role in that. So, I mean... What are some of your reflections of being on the label at that point, like in the early 90s? And you, you were like a young, how old were you, like, like 18 or something like that at the time? Yeah, yeah, I was in my late teens yeah. uh, when all that stuff kind of started to come together with Caven forming a relationship with Hydrahead and Aaron. Um, 
I remember early on visiting Aaron's art studio. Um, At the museum school? Or, yeah. Yeah, okay. And seeing his paintings sort of just huge and in real life. And, um, you know, that was a memory that just kind of came back to me as we were talking about this. And it kind of, you know, <laughs> paints a picture <laughs> of like what it felt like to work with someone putting out your records of that nature, you know, because um, he already sort of had that sort of, I guess, um, mindset of uh, a broader, newer, uh, fresh melding of like art and music. And uh, it was exciting, you know, and uh, just to work with someone who had a look to what they wanted to do with their music and their releases and, and being a part of that, um, you know, that was all new and very exciting for, for the band. And it's something that, you know, a lot of my favorite bands, uh, and artists, um, sort of, you know, had for themselves, you know, like, like a, even just something simple, like a logo yeah. or a look yeah. or a vibe and Hydra Head had all that, you know, and, so yeah, once again, just very, very exciting for Caven and I would venture us. to say that maybe aside from SST records back in the eighties, Hydrahead may have only been the only label that I'm aware of at that point that really had such a strong visual identity. Mm. You know, and, and most of that obviously we attribute to Aaron's um aesthetic and his uh, you know, background in, in uh fine art and you know, painting and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, because he had a pretty far out, if you remember, his hallway. Yes. That was a very far out expression, man. <laughs> it was like, the uh, you would go into the Hydrahead house and there would be, you know, basically the demons from Bloodlet's Entheogen record would would greet you when you walked in. It's like red, <laughs> demonic very sort of red. hallway. Very yeah, red. Yeah, like a landlord's nightmare, basically. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you think they were able, ever able to paint over that red where it still seeps through? Uh, you know, I'm sure uh, no matter how many times they've tried to paint over it, it still shines through. Did, did, um, did you ever get into like any classic <laughs> heavy metal stuff? I mean, you know, like Priest and Iron Maiden and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was a major influence on me growing up um, way before I even touched a guitar. Yeah. That was like me sort of forming my identity and... You know, I just knew that this music, uh, it accompanied me when I was alone. I could listen to it just without anyone else around and not feel lonely. Um, and I knew there was a connection there. It also just did something to me physically where I just wanted to lose my mind, yeah. break things <laughs> totally, <laughs> in a good way. Um, so there was this outlet of aggression that I've always connected to with, with heavy music and, um, you know, if you watch like early cave videos or performances, it's like there's some of that kind of mixed in there where we would just kind of lose our minds and, you know, roll around on the floor, you know, playing the right notes or playing any notes at all. Like it was overrated. <laughs> it was more about just like spastic energy and just losing yourself in it. And um, a lot of my favorite bands would kind of put that vibe on as well. And um yeah, uh, so Metallica, Iron Maiden, a lot of that musicality just, it still resonates with me, 
you know it kind of just set the bar for like orchestral awesome heavy music and you know how to fill a giant space really like the voice of james hetfield like that is meant for an arena you know bruce yeah, dickinson definitely. oh yeah you know? <laughs> so well Evelyn, since we mentioned bruce dickinson are you uh of the camp which camp are you with i mean are you a deano guy or a bruce dickinson guy both man both, yeah. um yeah i think deano's like just that punk awesomeness uh it's a little bit more blue collar you know scrappier mm-hmm. um but you know you can tell iron maiden had this whole sort of new thing happen to them once they had bruce on board it's almost like you can compare it to black sabbath in a way you oh, listen to the dio years yeah sabbath is like totally just fired up on this new fuel you know (laughs) you can really hear it and i don't prefer one over the other i'm a latecomer to dio sabbath um and i actually rejected it for a number of years just simply on principle i just didn't feel like i needed it in my life but uh that was a grave mistake (laughs) but you know i also feel like it's good to have some late discoveries sure man absolutely yeah so that was a really great late discovery for me was dio sabbath you know, I, I actually heard the Dio before before the Ozzy version of the band. Like some dude I knew when I was like 12 or whatever played me Heaven and Hell. And I was like, oh, this is great, man. This is cool. And then months later, it was like summertime and I was hanging out with uh, some friends and like their older brother had like this totally sick record collection. And uh, he whipped out the um, We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll record. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I know I know all this stuff, man, you know. But I wasn't prepared for the Sabbath, the Black Sabbath song, because I, th- I expected, you know, Ronnie James Dio's like stentorian tenor. You know what I mean? And what I got was like Ozzy Osbourne, and I wasn't even. It was like frightening. You know what I mean? That tritone like intro and everything. It's just so intense, and that I didn't even know if I liked the Ozzy version of the band until two days later when I was like, man, I got to hear that again, you know? And I was able to coexist with like both Dio and Ozzy, you know? But yeah, but yeah, it's like bands with such like, you know, sort of meandering histories as like, you know, I mean, there's a whole era of Sabbath in the nineties that they had all these different singers too. I mean, there was like three or four records with different vocalists that are completely marginalized and forgotten in in time and no one even revisits those records so Mm -hmm. i don't know it's just i find all that stuff fascinating i mean you're probably the same way i imagine with just like getting into all the little details about different bands oh 100 percent. um i feel like those records will probably come around and hit me at some point you know i I, i'll admit i'm not really in a rush (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that's okay um yeah and i you know with all the bands that I've ever played in and all the musical projects that I've done, there's definitely uh, a strong relationship to the revolving door aspect of, you know, certain bands more than others. And it's also equally fascinating um, when a band is able to maintain its original lineup to some degree, you know, and the longer I do this, the more I understand and appreciate how difficult that is oh yeah yeah i mean that's that's the blues jam that most dudes are playing bands that have like you know more than two records out experiences that 
you know, sometimes it's almost immediately that you start getting lineup issues and whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard gig, man, you know, to, to do this to, for real, like to be out there touring on the road, you know, having like a demanding schedule like that. A lot of people I think have misconceptions about what that takes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And especially at a young age, you know, like when you're first starting out and you're, you're all hopped up on youth and, you know, and then you want to get this thing rolling and then you start realizing that it's like, wow, this is like actual work, you know? So, mm-hmm. but still in all, there are, there's like few bands out there that have that original lineup or close to, you know, like sick of it all or something like that, you know? Yeah. One lineup change and that's it. Yeah. It's all the same guys. Yeah. So we were talking about um, MTV and it's funny that I've been talking a lot about nineties MTV and how much I actually miss it. So, and um, is that something, do you, do you find yourself missing some of those like 120 minute shows or headbangers ball or any of that kind of stuff? Or is that stuff that you watched? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we were talking about Aaron Turner and his paintings mm-hmm. and I, when you mentioned headbangers ball, I got this visual of Rob zombie where he just spent the entire, uh, it may have been more than one episode of it, but he just spent the whole time painting. Oh, wow. I felt like it was a way, it, it had a lot of messages looking back on it. It's kind of like that was his way of saying, you know, I have more important things to do, but I'm here because this is helping my band. And maybe like, uh, this is me uh, deflecting the annoying tendencies of Ricky Rickman. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but whatever, that's just like, you know, small details. Cause I think what that show did and what Ricky Rackman did was great for the world of heavy music and it resonates, you know, and here we are talking about it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I, actually I miss it. You know, I miss yeah. like having a show to tune in, like, you know, checking out videos and, you know, I, at the time I probably sort of diminished the, um, importance of that. But to this day, I'm like, wow, how many bands I found out about like, you know, sod on on headbangers ball you know what i mean i saw like a chromax video on there i saw like so much stuff like prong i discovered on headbangers ball oh yeah you know they had that live version of unconditional which i remember just feeling like damn this rips and i don't know that you can find it not on any streaming service i checked recently you know and um I still go back to Prove You Wrong. I love yeah, that Yeah, that's record. a great album. Yeah. yeah. That's not the go-to, though, for most people, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. it's a solid record. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a riff from that song, too. Uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, there's a riff from that. What, what do you think came first? I mean, we could look at we could look it up, but Painkiller, Judas Priest, or Prove You Wrong, Prong? I'm going to say Painkiller came first. Okay. Yeah. Because the main riff in Painkiller is very similar to a riff from Unconditional. I think it's like the verse riff. They're very similar. And Painkiller was just like, it blew everybody away. Yeah, because prior to that, it was uh, Screaming for Vengeance, then Painkiller. So yeah, Painkiller definitely came, well, actually, wait. Prove You Wrong came out in what, 90 maybe? 91. 91? Yeah. Painkiller definitely came out first. Because I remember in the 80s listening to Painkiller. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Or maybe like 90 or something. It was close, though. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, I was, I don't know, that's a bit of a tangent, but (laughs) I was listening to 
both records kind of recently and being like, wow, this this prongs riff is almost identical to the one in Painkiller. And it's no surprise. I mean, that record and that song in particular is just, it just made so many waves in the world of metal. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. Have you, did you catch uh, Priest at all in their like latest run of dates I've or anything? I've never seen Priest. Really? Yeah, Dude. it's a big mistake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they were amazing. I saw them over the, uh, actually, yeah, like, the the run they did with Saxon, I checked them out, and it was mm. it was everything I was hoping it was going to be. Even though it's only really like two original members, yeah. You know? Like, but it's still pretty sick. I mean, the guy that's that replaced KK Downing has been in the band for years at this point. Mm. Um, and I did see them with Glenn Tipton and KK Down and KK Downing like years ago. So they're like one of my favorite all time bands. I think. I mean, their catalog going all the way back to like the seventies. And that's a band that's evolved over time and they've gotten modern and, you know, but without compromising any of the songwriting, you know, I think it's, you know, this record they just put out was pretty, pretty rad, I thought, too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually checked out some of the fight stuff kind of recently for the first time and really dug it. How, how is that, really? I, I never listened to that stuff. Uh, at the time, it just wasn't something that was on my radar, but is it good? I it's mean, worth checking out for sure. Like, what, what would you compare it to? Um, it's like a scrappier Judas Priest, uh, leaner. Okay. Um, it's mean. And yeah, Rob Halford, again, he, it's like that sort of Dio thing where you, you hear him kind of just fired up. He's got a whole new band and it's just this sort of re-energizing I gotta of check his that talents. Out. Yeah. yeah, that's always there in the back of my mind. That's a band I've always wanted to like just give a listen to. Um, yeah. I, you know, Halford's like him and Dio are my my two favorite heavy metal singers ever. So I need to check it out. I'm, I'm it's a, a disservice to his catalog that I don't know those records. Yeah, I was working with a band that um, they're about 15 years younger than me like they're you know in their early to mid 20s and they were the ones who actually turned me on to it i'm glad to hear that actually. yeah you know what i mean because like i i wonder sometimes like what you know young people get into that are you know coming into this thing and it's like it's refreshing to hear that something like that still is, has relevance to like people who are you know 20 years old you know yeah so do you, do you record bands for is that like what do you do down here in new york on the day-to-day -day grind here? Um, I do a lot of work with a music public publishing company. Okay. Um, yeah, it's uh, BMG, and I've been working with them for um, about three, four years now. Uh, so I was originally signed as uh, a co-writer, or I had a co-publishing deal, rather. So that allowed me to enter the world of co-writing with their artists and in addition to that i do some temp work um it's great it's been what keeps me afloat That's in awesome. new york when i'm yeah. not on tour it's like a job that i didn't know i could ever have that i'm sort of you know trying to make it work trying to get it to snowball more um and I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of great bands. And the work that I do with a lot of the artists kind of comes back into my world. And it, you know, re-energizes me to do work with 
you know, my bands. Sure. Um, so it's this cool give and take. Uh, yeah. So is Caven still, um, I mean, I know earlier this year we had the unfortunate uh, death of Caleb Schofield, uh, but is, is Caven still a uh, more or less active band? You yes. Know? Okay, yeah, because that's what my, was my impression. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a sad, you know, I, when I heard that news, I mean, I didn't know Caleb well, but I met him prior to him actually being in Caven. And um, when I remember actually, as a little aside, he was in a band from, I think, New Hampshire, this hardcore band. And they recorded a demo at this studio I was working at, and I just thought the guy had like these incredibly intense, uh, heavy vocals, and he was the vocalist. And then maybe two or three months later, my old band was playing with your band, Caven, in Canada, and in Montreal, and lo and behold, uh, Caleb was there. Oh, that's wild. And, and he was just like, hey, Mike, how you doing, man? I'm like, oh, what are you doing, man? It's like, I'm playing in Caven. I'm like, that's awesome, dude. And, uh, you know, over the years, we, we run into each other, you know, here and there, you know, just, you know, you, uh, we've never really played shows together, but he was around, like, when we toured with ISIS, like, I'd see him at, in L.A. and things yeah. like that. So you were part of the recording for the Strike 3 demo. That's correct. Demo. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say that we were close, but he was definitely someone that was in my, my like circle, my orbit of people that I knew. And it was very sad to hear of his passing. And, you know, as a result of that, there was a, a benefit show that happened in Boston. And then there's another benefit show coming up in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, that features the, you know, the ISIS reunion and cave in and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. so, um, who who's playing bass now that that you know in in, in place of of Caleb in the band? Uh, well, for the Boston show, we did essentially two sets. Um, the first set that we did was with Kyle Schofield, who's Caleb's younger brother, and the second part of the set we did with Nate Newton. From Converge, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and that's going to be the same same thing for next month's uh, re, uh, show out in L.A.? Yes. And this is all, like, benefit-type stuff for Caleb's family and everything? Yeah. Um, we're going to put all the proceeds, much like we did for the Boston show, um, for L.A. to the Schofield family. Is there is there any kind of, like, GoFundMe or something that we could talk about that maybe people can contribute to that are listening to this? Yeah, currently... There's a You Caring site for the Schofield family. Um, you can find links to that on any of the Caven social media pages. Uh, it's, it's not too hard to search for on the web. Um, it's been up and running for several months now. I'm not sure how much longer it's going to be up. But additionally, um, Hydrahead has put together a merch table which is a, a, um, a place online. It's like an online shop where you can buy things that are related to, you know, Caven, Zozobra, um, Old Man Gloom, um, things that you can purchase with the proceeds going to the Schofield family. And uh, I think there's going to be more releases in the future that get... Um, released either under the Hydrahead merch table or via something else where people will have the opportunity to donate money. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad to hear that there's something like that going yeah. around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
But um, but yeah, that's um, yeah, that was heavy news, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's good to see people coming together for that. You know, I spoke to Aaron about this as well, and yeah, you know, he was like, you know, was touched by how many people have actually come out to support. So yeah, so yeah anyone out there is a you know wants to make some kind of difference, you know, please check these things out and uh, contribute. You know, it's much appreciated. Yeah, and thanks to everybody who have, you know, they've reached out and people who have contributed and come to the shows and, um, you know, bought tickets and, you know, it's, uh, you know, what, what can we say? I mean, people loved Caleb. They really did. We loved Caleb. And, um, you know... All this is made possible via the family allowing us to support. Um, we do everything with their blessing, and it is healing for us as well to sure. all kind of get together and plan things and spend time together. Um, it, it really has, I, I think, helped to dull the blow and the shock of the whole thing, um, you know. I don't think we'll ever not be dealing with this in some way, but you know, the community aspect of what we've been doing is very helpful. And, you know, I, I only foresee more of that down the line. Just getting back to, um, to cave in for a bit here before we move on to the, we're in the still in the past, I guess, at this point of our discussion here. Um, so after all these records on Hydrahead, you guys signed to a major label, okay? Now, as a kid, when I was a kid growing up, you know, I was looking at you know my Aussie records and everything. I thought like, man, being a rock star, doing major label stuff. Like, how did how did that come? How did the reality of that situation reconcile with your expectations of it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that there's ever been a full reconciliation, <laughs> <laughs> which makes it interesting. Yeah. It really does, you know. Um, you know, it was just a really interesting whirlwind, and I'm glad that we got to experience it, you know. And I think Caven came out the other end a lot better than other bands who experienced something similar. Um Part of that was having good management that had worked with major label bands before and been involved in the world of major labels and kind of knew what we needed in our contract and fought for it when the time came. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, again, very lucky for that, which yielded the Cave and Album Perfect Pitch Black. And, you know, um, that was a record that I think more or less kind of sealed the door closed on that chapter of our band, you know? Um, but I don't know if records and experiences are, are had like that much these days, at least in the world of rock and metal, you know? Um, there was a lot of money. <laughs> There's just so much money spent on crazy stuff, you know? Like the first time we toured Europe. We shipped all our gear overseas. Wow. Yeah, we shipped like sun cabs and sun amps, and I think JR shipped his entire drum kit. And so if you look at photos of us on this first European tour, you know, 
it was booked by a punk agency and we're playing these like punk clubs and you know um <laughs> but like people were looking at our gear being like what the hell are you playing like i mean this is 2001 maybe nowadays uh it's a little bit more varied thanks to like you know nomads of prague and other you know companies out there just i think offering more of a selection but you know people were just kind of like where'd you get that amp what are you doing with that over here? Yeah, Orange. Yeah, I mean that's you know, I mean, <laughs> though it's a British company, you don't see too many of those in Europe, really. You know, yeah, at least back then you didn't. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that. Looking back on it now, or just like, I mean, I couldn't even tell you how much that actually cost. I mean, but I don't know. It wasn't cheap. <laughs> yeah, just just on like an accounting basis, like you have to. Man, is it cheaper to rent or you know? I can't imagine it being cheaper to ship that amount of stuff over there than just to rent like a backline, you know? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's another thing too, is we didn't really even know what was going on with that aspect of things. And we didn't really care that much. It wasn't that big of a deal. You know, we were in our like early to mid twenties and far more resilient and, you know, our accountant was paying our rent and our rehearsal space rent. So we had like a little per diem that we'd get every month. And, you know, we didn't need much and we didn't want much either. What we had was like, oh, we can just do the band. We don't necessarily need another job. I mean, some of us ended up getting other part-time jobs just because we were bored. Yeah, right. yeah I've heard <laughs> like, that from people. Yeah, yeah like well, what do you want to do today? All right, practice again, like five days a week, you know, three or four weeks in a row. It kind of, like, I hate to say it, I, but it, it kind of got a little boring at times. Um, I've heard that from Jonah Jenkins, actually, when he yeah. was in Milltown. It was like, you know, those guys were in a similar situation with their deal, and Jonah was like, Man, I, I still wish I had my, my job over at, uh, at, at MIT or wherever, Harvard or wherever he worked at, you know, <laughs> the office, you know, and it's just because he's like, yeah, I just need stuff to do during the day. Yeah. Um, so the flip side of all that is we got to spend a lot of time together. And, you know, when I listened to demos that we were making at the time and bootlegs of shows that we were playing, we were tight as hell. We really were, you know, and it was a well-oiled machine. And, you know, we basically just had a life together. We really did for, man, I guess like four or five years straight. That was it. You know, it was caving. That was like number one. <laughs> and so for what that experience did and what it gave us in terms of, I guess, that bonding time and experience together um there's really nothing else like it now having the opportunity to spend more time on the record too and recording because i mean as you know i mean everyone's you know anyone that's plays in a band and makes records um you know on the independent level the one major thing is you never have enough time to do anything you never have like, i mean i need more days on vocals or like you know there's compromises all the way up and down the line yeah now was this the first time you had a, an opportunity to actually spend the 
required amount of time to give you something that you felt was was complete. Oh, there was far more than the required amount of time. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was like writing sessions in California and then meeting with producers and then you know, they weigh in on their input on your songs and then it scrambles your brain so you rethink all the arrangements and how you're doing it. So you go back and you rewrite them and <laughs> and then by the time you actually choose a producer, they have their own ideas on how things oh, should wow, go. Yeah, yeah. And so by that point, it's like the nucleus of the song, the compositions, were just so far in some ways removed from the um from what what they became it's like uh it really does make your head spin um and in some ways it was a trap for us you know creatively um to just have that much time to 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 do that you know um but yeah i mean listen to antenna that's the record we did on RCA, and it's like I had all the time in the world to get every note <laughs> that I was singing where I thought it should be at the time. And uh, it doesn't always necessarily make for a better record, but it is a unique experience to just have that much precision at your fingertips. I mean, in addition to a producer, there was a guy that was just there to edit he was just there to comp vocals <laughs> comp takes you know like sitting at the computer <laughs> just it, it's wild it really is to think back on that now um and again it's it doesn't make something better or worse it's almost like if you have a bucket list of things you want to do as a band we made the slick corporate record where we were like trying to appeal to everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean like the fans that we already had, the people that were rooting for us, you know, maybe some of the enemies too that were like, what the hell are you doing? You guys have sucked since your first record, <laughs> since you've been a four piece, you know? Um, and then also appealing to an imaginary audience. It's like looking farther out and seeing like, who could this appeal to? Who might be into this? Um, we did it. We, we had that experience. It was a whirlwind and, um, yeah, I mean, again, I just, I keep going back to like, well, it's, it's something that we checked off the list and we were just lucky to, we were lucky that we all kind of were on board for it too, to be like, yeah, all right, totally. let's do this. No one was really being dragged along. Which can yeah. happen, especially coming from the scene that you and I are both familiar with. Yeah. You know I mean, like there's some people who might be averse to this sort of thing. Yeah. Well, at least collectively, we were all like, yeah, let's do this. But at various times, for sure. I mean, you know, I struggled on the road. Um, you know, I wasn't always the easiest to be around. Um, and I know that that affected the other guys. And, you know, it's like you said, it's that reconciliation of what you want in your mind and what the reality is. And, you know, 
I can speak for everybody that we all struggled with the reality. You know, when we were out on tour and like the thing with the major label experience that was really detrimental to Caven, I think was when our team wanted us to just look busy. Right. Okay. And by looking busy, it's just like go out on the road, just do something, you know, keep your presence, keep your, you know, don't let people forget about you. Sure. And so, you know, speaking of European tours, we had one killer European tour that we did and it was around like 2002 and it was just off of um, the experience of having opened for the Foo Fighters where we were direct support in the UK and it was great. And so we followed that with a UK tour, maybe parts of Europe too, I don't quite remember, but a lot of that energy came into this headlining tour that we Mm -hmm. did and it was awesome. And then somehow we went out again playing Europe just like on a headlining tour maybe I don't know three months later yeah that's that's usually people want to see you maybe once a year over in Europe yeah exactly that's a little yeah saturation maybe you know oh and so we show up to some of the same venues that we were on just three months ago you know right and we, we 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 had fans coming up to us you know being like um why is there only half the number of people here this time around or a third like yeah. what what's happened what's wrong with you guys why is the, why why are you here again yeah you're <laughs> i feel like in the states i feel like you can hit a city in the united states like maybe three times a year you know if you want it if you want to be on this we're staying busy thing you know yeah but like it's not a good idea if you're a, of a headliner status to be banging out these same markets all the time but in europe you definitely once a year is what they want to see you over there. That's it, man. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. not strategic whatsoever. Yeah. It was like maybe if we were opening for a larger band. Yeah, you're and supporting we... somebody. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But um, there were some mistakes of that nature made. Just where, like, let's keep caving, looking busy. And, yeah, it, it, it bummed us out. It was hard, you know? I mean, like, going back to how we started this conversation, which is, like, going out and doing this hard enough as it is sure yeah you know so yeah you throw in some some mismanaged decisions on the road where i think it's worse i think that's the worst i think that's the real killer is when like you say yes to the tour you shouldn't have oh yeah or you're out for too long you Mm -hmm. should have did three weeks instead of four right right. you know or five or whatever it just kills morale and everyone gets like grouchy and and also, it affects like your, the currency you have because sometimes, like, you roll through a town. They're like, "Oh, there was like 500 people, and tonight there was only 300." The next time, a year later, the promoters are gonna be like, "Oh, well, they only drew like 300 the last time they were here," and then trying to get, you know what I mean? Like on that booking agent type of thing, it's like, you know, because there's always that war with the, you know, the booking agent has with the promoters of like money and what a band's worth in certain towns and things like that. So it's like. You have to really mind your P's and Q's, you know, about headlining and doing too many headlining, like, sh- you know, tours. Yeah, I mean, for people behind the scenes, it's it's largely been about numbers. Yeah, totally. And in 2018, even more so. Yeah. Really, I mean, it's like information everywhere, you mm-hmm. know, streaming plays, blah, 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 numbers, attendance. And yeah, it's like, if you 
aren't sensitive to, you know, what your fans want and how much they actually need from you (laughs) (laughs) or what you need. Yeah. It's like, so, so, you know, that's the negative side of the major label experience for Caven for sure. What was one of the most, um, unusual couplings with a, with a band, like supporting a band that you guys did on a major label? Like as far as like touring goes, because I imagine like, you know, that that might come up here and there, like supporting some band that you probably were like, this makes no sense at all. Uh, We did a few of those festival type shows that are put together by radio stations. Oh, yeah. okay. where they cluster every band that's sort of like in their top rotation together to play. We actually were on a tour in the States and we got an offer to play this radio show for uh, a station called The End, which I think oh, yeah. is out of Seattle. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that, yeah. So, um, no, 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 I'm sorry. Um, we did actually do that, but we got offered to play, this is a different radio station festival thing that was put on by maybe BCN, or no, oh, okay. maybe it was FNX. All right, yep, or, all that um, makes sense. <laughs> or AAF, like one of one the those big, big rock stations. Yeah, or, one of the big know. rock stations in, in Massachusetts. I think it may have been um, WAF. And so we took a red eye from the West Coast to play this show. And, you know, it was very heavy on the new metal. <laughs> sure, yeah, at that time, I imagine, yeah. Yeah, definitely. like 2002, yep. 2003. Uh, I can't remember who the headliner was or some of the bigger bands, but, you know, just think back to that time and, you know, insert, like, X, you know, new metal band, and it, chances are they were playing. And so we took this red eye back, and we show up to where we were supposed to play and it was like this fairground type situation and it was pouring rain that's a drag <laughs> it was disgusting mm-hmm. and we played sometimes super early in the afternoon like twelve forty p.m you know and uh everything was soaked and there was just mud everywhere and it was disgusting and you know we may have been wearing raincoats like <laughs> during our set. Just it just felt like what the hell are we doing, you know? And uh there was a few situations like that. Um as far as specific bands that we went out with, Jimmy E. World was actually a it on paper, quote unquote, <laughs> it seemed like a strange pairing. But we actually went over pretty well with their crowd. Yeah, I, I don't really see that as just being familiar with like that, you know, emo sort of scene, those types of kids are definitely more amenable to listen to like heavier stuff. It's at least in the 90s or early 2000 or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, we sort of catered our set to more of the stuff that we released around the turn of the century Yeah, for that crowd. And it actually went over pretty well. Um, we opened for Muse. Oh, wow. When they okay. were like kind of blowing up and becoming, yeah. you know, uh, like an arena band. Mm-hmm. The thing that was odd about that was we didn't have any major label push at that point. We had to kind of, I actually, I remember having a meeting 
like we flew out to have a meeting with some people from RCA to basically like beg them <laughs> to let us tour with Muse uh, in, in terms of like getting some support. Support, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we got it. But I think outside of maybe a little bit of tour support, we didn't get any push from like the marketing. press end of things. Exactly. Yeah, right. So we were just this band out on tour with Muse. There was no indication on the radio or with press that was kind of like, you know, hyping it. Like, holy, sh- holy shit, Caven's on tour with Muse, you know? Um, because <laughs> uh, it was a, you know, we were playing these massive places and we were direct support. Um, but it just felt like the album that we were touring on, Antenna, at that point already felt dead in the water. And I think presence for RCA in general in, in, in Europe was, it was pretty challenged, you know, because I know, if I remember correctly, I think the label kind of had to work with like a bunch of satellite Oh, yeah, so like companies. licensing type stuff or something like some some organization does like the Benelux or something like that. And like, yeah, I'm aware yeah. of that, yeah. So European releases through RCA were already pretty challenged in order to get everybody to rally together, right? Right, right, yeah. So, yeah, I think what could have been something a little bit more exciting and and, and maybe have done more for the band um, on that end of things was, you know, they kind of blew it. (laughs) Yeah. So now Mutoid Man, which is like your current... That seems to be like you're probably the band that you're, you're putting the most energy into these days. It's a band that I didn't even think was going to become a band. <laughs> you know, I do a lot of recording projects and, you know, I, I, I'm i just very fortunate that I have a lot of just killer, talented musician friends that are down to just do stuff, sure. you know? And so that's what Mutoid Man started out as. I mean, we weren't even called Mutoid Man. I think uh, the first name of the band was Narcoleptic Beagle, which is just something that Ben Kohler (laughs) used to title the demos we were making in (laughs) iTunes, you know? (laughs) Um, But yeah, it, it was really his idea to make it into a band. And I'm, and I'm glad I'm really, you know, thankful and, and lucky that he wanted to do that and, and that the band, really with Nick joining the band, Nick Caggio, um, it just became a life of its own. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It seems like you guys are doing a bunch of really cool stuff. Now, the next cool thing you guys have coming up is that tour with Danzig. Yes. That's pretty sweet. It's great. We did some dates with Danzig last year on the East Coast and... It was such a good fit for Mutoid Man, you know, um, going out and playing for like, you know, sort of the older rocker crowd, yeah. I think is really appealing for us. It's it's great. You know, it's uh, there's a lot about our band that kind of has the spirit of like, you know, I think we're Danzig, you know, at least the world that he's influenced. Right. You know, I got you, yeah. Um, and we're very very fortunate and and in addition to danzig we get to do some of those shows with power trip oh yeah mm-hmm. which is like i mean as far as the the modern 80s thrash sound they're kind of leading 
the yeah, charge on that, you know? Crossover kind of vibe. Like yeah, yeah. Crossover sound. Uh-huh. And Venom Inc. Yeah, Venom Inc. I, I saw that they were on the tour, too. And I we, we played with Venom Inc. out, out west. And I, uh, I was kind of, like, very, very curious as to what it was going to sound like. Yeah. And I was like, man, I don't know. Like, you know, this is, there's no Kronos. But there's mm-hmm. Abaddon, though. Yeah. And I was like, right. but then when they started playing, I was like, man, this was like, it's pretty awesome. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I really, really. And then their album came out. And the album, I mean, all right. It, it is not, you know, a, 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 it's not black metal by, by Venom, but it's a pretty damn good record. You cool. Know I mean, it's like, if you can just open, open your mind up, you, not meaning you, Steve, but you listeners out there who are dubious about Venom, um, just kind of listen to it as a, a hard rock album and you'll enjoy it. And I, I really dig it. And live, they're great. Like they work the crowd and you know, it's, um, it's just like fun, heavy metal. That's all I can say about it. You know? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And it actually is like a, a more or less legit version of the band because in the nineties, there was a period when Kronos wasn't in the band and this guy, a uh, demolition man, whatever the hell his name is, mm-hmm. the guy who took his place on in this version of the band was actually in Venom proper oh so, right on so it's a legitimate you know sort of continuum of of members so it's it's not too much of a reach to call it venom incorporated or whatever yeah it sounds like a good representation yeah so that's great i mean has danzig um informed any of the work that you do creatively like you know is, is he an influence of yours oh 100 percent um well if you know we were talking about metallica a little yeah. bit earlier and you know I don't think this is a direct quote necessarily, but um, I either read or heard something about James Hetfield saying that he more or less kind of learned how to sing or or learned how to shape what he ultimately, you know, uh, sort of found with his own voice in Metallica by just you know, honing in on what Danzig does. Yeah. Listening to Danzig. That makes right? sense. Like his vocal yeah. patterns, maybe, you know, I mean, his, his maybe now more so now, cause I feel like Hetfield's vocal abilities have increased since like, you know, ride the lightning, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, I could see that. You know? Yeah. So, you know, inadvertently there's that influence and, um, yeah, I mean, there's just something about like, um, I don't know. I mean, people call him the evil Elvis, so, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, you, you can't deny it. Yeah. It's, it's, that influence is everywhere. It really is in the world of, like, metal and punk. Um, and I love how there's just varying degrees of what he does, you know? I mean, he can own it on some of the scrappiest recordings. It's almost like they're meant to challenge you, like, like those early misfit recordings and some of those compositions and songs, the combination of the two, you get like this almost like a a fifties sort of rock and roll pop song. Absolutely. But just like crushed by the dirt and punk and goth weirdness of like what was going on in the late seventies yeah, on the yeah, East totally. Coast. And it's almost challenging you, you know, like Here's this scuzzy recording. Find the great song. In None there. of the guitars are in tune. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, that was the one thing. I mean, not not so much as a kid, but later on as I learned how to tune my instrument, I realized, I'm like, wait, these guys aren't even in tune, man. <laughs> you know? But, but it's all good. 
I, I got into I found out about the Misfits through Metallica from, you know, those guys wearing their T-shirts. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, man, that skull is so badass. And the Misfits is the logo. Like, it was very, I'm like, I'm a big comic book guy. And I recognize a lot of that imagery from, you know, horror, horror comics and horror movies. And then when I got into the band, you know, picked up Legacy of Brutality. That was the first Misfits record I heard. It was the, the rockabilly Elvis like combined with what you were talking about, the punk sound, because that was like, that was probably the first music I would listen to was like Elvis Presley and like Carl Perkins and that kind of stuff through yeah. my parents, you know, like 50s doo-wop stuff. And, and Danzig Misfits was like the perfect combination of all those things to me. And um, it just connected with me on this very, like those instinctual level, you know what I mean? And then, you know, Sam Hain and, and then his Danzig stuff as Danzig, I thought it was, it's all pretty brilliant stuff. So, yeah. No, that's great, man. I'm definitely... Is that a West Coast tour or an East Coast tour? Uh, yeah, the dates with Danzig in October are West Coast. Ah, okay. Hopefully hopefully that happens out here. I'd like to see Danzig again. Yeah. Um, Mutoid Man just did Psycho Vegas, and Danzig headlined one of the nights, and he sounded great. Yeah. 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 Did you catch any of those Misfits uh, reunions? I didn't. No, I didn't go either. <laughs> no. Um, man, I would love to have seen it just for uh, watching Dave Lombardo play drums alone, you know? I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've never actually seen him perform either. So, yeah, I got the Judas Priest. I got <laughs> Dave Lombardo. I got I got some things on my bucket list <laughs> I got to check off. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um... It's funny because there's a, a book about the Misfits called This Music Leaves Stains that I, I ordered it and read it. It's like told from the the guy who wrote it, found, like discovered the Misfits post Danzig. So he got into all those records in the 90s. The guy who wrote this. OK. Um, and, and I remember he sits in the forward or the preface to the book. He's like, oh, yeah. Then I found out that that guy in Danzig used to sing for the misfits and i was like it was such a upside down way of seeing it but i was like hey i mean this dude's like a young guy at least he went back to find out about this stuff but i guess like having listened to those records that jerry only was part of i think i would rather see danzig perform the misfits songs with his band which i did see on the legacy tour oh cool. you know what i mean it was like on that legacy tour it was like he did a set of Misfits songs, and he did Sam Hain, and then he did his Danzig material. And I just feel like, you know, I'm like, I guess I'm, I'm Team Glenn over Team Jerry in some ways, you know. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, and also, in a way, you're not really seeing, like, I mean, we talked about, I've talked about reunions a bunch in different forums about, you're not really seeing... I feel like the spirit of that band when you go see him at some like, you know, PNC art center or something like that, mm -hmm. like that band, I felt like you missed the window of seeing them in their natural habitat of like some VFW hall with like 60 people there, you know? Yeah. Uh, Henry Rollins talks about that because the subject of a black flag reunion sometimes comes up yeah. and I think that's part of his whole vibe when it comes to not wanting to reunite Black Flag. Yeah. He's just like, that was a time and a place. Absolutely, yeah. You know, that was a piece of history, and 
you know, it was meant to be what it was when it was. And I have a lot of respect for taking that stance, especially in a time where it's very common, where a lot of bands are reuniting. Yeah, definitely. And I'm not against reunions whatsoever. I think if, uh, if a band ends horribly, whether it's like something tragic or just uh, some differences between band members that just get so ugly that they can't work it out um you know life's too short if you can get back together and just kind of remember why you did it to begin with and sort of bury the hatchet squash the beef sure um i think it's healthy yeah yeah i I, um i'm not so quick to to run out to these reunions um you know in general i mean i'm not i mean i'm not a whatever people do what they want to do but uh the one i did go to the rorschach reunion when they reunited and did like some touring and i was like blown away at how good that was oh yeah yeah i think i saw that in boston yeah yeah it was pretty amazing to see those guys up on it was the cool thing about that reunion was original members original roadies (laughs) that was pretty right on it's like my friend will tarrant who used to run Chainsaw Safety Records. He was selling merch for him. And, uh, you know, um, Chris from Doc Hopper was driving the van. They're still using his van, even though a newer version, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it just, the vibe was cool. Like, I saw them at the Acheron before that place got shut down. And um, it was just like I remembered it. Like, I, you know, I'd seen Rorschach play a handful of times when they were together. And the highlight of my whole year was that I got the opportunity to sing my war with black with uh the black flag song with warshack oh man and that came just luckily like it's it's funny that that's cool i knew the words to the song like Mm -hmm. it's it's been it's like the reciting the pledge of allegiance or something like that like the words to that (laughs) the punk pledge of allegiance (laughs) so that was like really really cool and you know whatever but aside from all that it was just great to see that band perform and it was like gave me faith in reunions i guess so what i am against in a lot of cases, is when a band decides to remix a classic record. And the reason I'm against it is because my ears are pretty sensitive in 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 the case that like, or to the point where I don't want to hear something um, and feel like I'm being disoriented from my initial impression of it. So, you know, for instance, Megadeth, Rust in Peace classic record sure i mean i listened to that record so much growing up that the sound the vibe the feel is just burned into my yeah, brain yeah right exactly and at some point the vocals were re-recorded and it was remixed mm. and um i'll hear it just you know i don't know i'm out somewhere or whatever i'll never put it on you know what i mean like i know the rust and peace i want to hear so it's extra frustrating when it's being played and I can tell that it's the remix. Yeah, yeah. And I can just hear all the little nuances that are different. And I'm like, God damn, that's so disorienting. That's so distracting. <laughs> yeah. It's keeping me from enjoying this because I'm hearing what, you know, I'm hearing all these things that uh, are just, it, it's, not, it's not bringing me back to that time that I first heard something. Sure. So, yeah. 
bands, musicians, don't mess with your old stuff. You know, um, if it you think it could sound better, don't even bother. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> yeah. the impression that it makes on people. It's that first impression. You want to preserve that. So don't mess with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, thank you very much for uh, you know setting aside some time to, to talk to me, and I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for listening out there. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. We'll be back next week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio via web, iOS, or Android for one of the best metal communities in the world, exclusive interviews and merch, and so much more.